can see a change coming. Our God is here to save. We can see a change coming. The streets are filled with praise. We can see a change coming. The church will take her place. We can see a change.
And even as the scripture declares over and over that in your presence, even the angels of heaven at times hide their faces before you to extol your holiness and your majesty and your greatness. And God, in our own human way, we approach you and we bring our hearts and ourselves before you. But God, when it's all said and done, it's our hearts that are unable to hold the very presence of God in the way that we want to and desire to. So Lord, as we worship you and we draw closer to you daily, I pray, Lord, that you would increase our capacity to know you, to serve you, and to worship you. And God, that we would bring great honor to your name. In your name we pray, the church say amen. 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 Well, I know we're practicing social distancing, so why don't you turn to somebody, give them a smile and an air high five. Or you can shake their hands and hug them, whatever you want to do. Amen. Well, it certainly is good to see everyone, uh, to be in worship together. Uh, thank God for that. If you have your scriptures today or your smartphone, whichever you carry, you can turn to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to get there in a few moments. This will be a, um, I hope it's uh, a moment today that touches our hearts, that challenges us before God. And for those of you who may be joining us online or watching later, I hope that this will be uh, something that ministers to you and that maybe in your, in your home or in your car or wherever you're at, that you will be able to uh, sense the presence of the Lord and maybe Him speaking to you in, uh, in a great way. So today I want to talk about the topic, uh, when the game's over, it all goes back in the box. Somebody say, back in the box. Do you, let me ask you a question, do you seem to always be in a hurry? Or at least most of the time? Yes? Okay. Somebody said that really fast. Did you notice that? Yes, I'm going to hurry get on with your point, right? We always seem to be in this hurry. Do you ever feel like you live in the world of the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland? And here's her quote. It takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Anybody felt like that? Ryan's felt like that for the last week or two, right? Yeah. No matter how fast you run, you find yourself in the same place. You know, it seems like we are living in a hurried world, and we want to get things done faster. Do you notice that life seems to be getting faster and faster? 
I thought it was just me as I grow older. Things get faster and faster. But I hear from even uh, young folks that know it's getting faster and faster. And you know, we'll even uh, pay for people to help keep us in a hurry and keep us going quickly. Uh, In his his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, uh, John Ortberg said that um, Citicorp became the number one lender in America by cutting in half the amount of time it takes for you to get a loan. And now we've seen others have followed that suit and such things as Rocket Mortgage goes on. Back in the day, Denny's experienced a great explosion in their restaurant business by getting lunch to your table in a guaranteed 10 minutes or less. And Domino's, the number one seller of pizzas in the U.S., guaranteed delivery in 30 minutes or less. At one point, the Domino's CEO said, we don't sell pizzas, we sell delivery. And if you've ever had a Domino's pizza, you understand. You, <laughs> we get them. <laughs> I will say, in, in, in Domino's defense, they have gotten better in recent years. USA Today had this report. They said, taking their cue from Domino's Pizza, a Detroit hospital guarantees that an emergency room patient will be seen within 20 minutes or the treatment is free. So far, Doctor's Hospital has delivered. Since the offer was made, this has been a little time ago, June 24th on television, business has been up 30%. Mortality rate is up 120%. People are dying, but they're dying faster, which is what we want. That's all we're really asking. We might pay for things that just tend to free up some time for us, but most of us, it tends to enslave us to something else. You know, in the late 1960s, the popularity of a new um, restaurant chain grew, and we call it fast food, not good food. We don't even call it cheap food. We just call it fast food. We have to, you know, be able to get there and get our food and get it fast and eat dinner in the car just like God intended us to do, right? We don't want to have to wait. We keep moving and keep moving. A couple of cardiologists did a study, Meyer Friedman and Ray Rosenman. They coined a term that was called hurry sickness, after noticing that many of their patients suffered from this harrying sense of time urgency. And here's how they defined it, and it'll be on the screen for you. Hurry sickness is a continuous struggle and unremitting uh, acceptance to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. So, I thought... You know, what we could do is we could look at this and say, hey, is, uh, is there a test that we can give to see? Because I think hurried sickness kills us. It kills us physically. It kills us spiritually. All of us battle with this in one form or another. And so what I decided to do is we'll just have a mass confessional today. How about that? Not yet. Not yet. Let me give you some symptoms, and you can, you can maybe lift your hand sheepishly as one applies to you. You often feel yourself feeling like there is just not enough hours in the day. How about this? In traffic at a light, you carefully choose which car you get behind. Okay, a little more. 
At the grocery store, if there are two lines, you check to see which line has the most people and which of them have the least amount of items in their cart. (laughs) More people. And if you're really sick, you always keep track of where you might have been in the other lane at a light or McDonald's. Oh, there we go. We're hitting a lot of people right there with that. Now, how many of us suffer from hurried sickness? All right, we've almost got 100% in here. A national survey was done, and it asked the question, if you had one more hour in the day to do anything you wanted, what would you do? What was the number one answer? Sleep. Yep, absolutely, was sleep. Father brings home a briefcase every day. His young son is confused about why, and finally he asks, he says, Dad, why do you bring your briefcase home every day? And his dad said, well, son, I can't get all of my work done at the office. The boy looks inquisitively and says, well, can't they put you in a slower group? (laughs) Son, those don't exist. Let me tell you a story, a little modern-day parable. There was a businessman, it could be a businesswoman, whoever you want to add into this, wanted to be a success and wanted to do, was willing to do anything it took to be that success. It was not just his occupation, it became his preoccupation. His wife tries to get him to slow down. Hey, you need to take some time for the kids. So the kids, they actually eventually quit asking, quit complaining because there was no expectation. He tells himself this, I'll be available when things settle down. Maybe just another six months. One o'clock in the morning, he feels a twinge in his chest. He experiences a mild heart attack. He changes his daily routine for a while after visiting the doctor. He gets some medication, expensive machines to monitor himself, cholesterol, blood pressure, all of that stuff. After the symptoms go away, so does the motivation. I'll do all those things when things settle down, just just maybe another six months or so. He knows his life is out of balance. He thinks about God sometimes and thinks he should be doing more. He knows that he should go to church. He should take his kids to church and be there with him. But Sunday morning seems to be the only morning that he can crash, sleep in. I'll do that with them. And I'll do that a little later when things settle down. It should only take about six months or so. One day the COO of the company brings him in and says, hey, we're, we're making some changes. Things are booming, but we need you to move into a department to do a major overhaul on technology. This is a big deal. So we're going to promote you, going to push you up, and plus there's a major bonus when we get all this in place. He becomes a man possessed. He tells his wife, honey, we're going to be set for life after this. This is it. This is the big moment. 11 p.m., his wife says, hey, are you coming to bed? He says, yes, I've just got a little bit more to finish. She awakes at 3 o'clock in the morning. He still hasn't come to the bed. She sees him. He's still at the computer. Oh, he's fallen asleep. She thinks this is ridiculous. So she goes to wake him up, and his skin is cold to her touch. There is no response to her voice. She feels that sickness in her stomach calls 911. The paramedics say he's gone. He had a massive coronary and he's been dead for hours. His death was a major news story in the community, in the financial community. He had a huge memorial service. The eulogies were outstanding because he was a success. He was buried, the headstone was placed, and everyone went home. And under the darkness of the night, the angel of God visits the cemetery and makes his way to the marker, and there with one finger traces a single word that God chooses to assess this man's life. Fool. 
You might say, Pastor, that's kind of hard. That's harsh. I would say it might be, but I'm taking my cues from Jesus. If you have your scriptures in Luke chapter 12, I want to direct your attention to the passage of verse 16 through 21. It says this, And Jesus gave an illustration, and he said, A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. In fact, his barns were full to overflowing. So he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store everything I have. Then I'll set back and I'll say to myself, My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you will die this very night. And then, who will get it all? Yes, Jesus says, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but have not maintained a rich relationship with God. So there's Jesus' parable of his day, of the, we call him the, the rich young ruler, the successful young ruler. Jesus describes this man as a fool, and tragically, it's an accurate diagnosis. What other word is there for someone who is so brilliant that they're able to take into consideration every conceivable contingency except the one that stares at them in the face every day? Their own mortality. Because we only have the moment we are in. He's so busy making a living that he doesn't make a life. And even in the story of this young rich ruler, this rich man, He says, oh, I'll get to that point, and then I'll sit back and say to myself. Now, I think there's a couple things as we look at this passage that we need to think about. Jesus starts it out by telling us that this is a a rich man. Now, I don't want you to get the misconception that Jesus didn't like him because he was rich. There is a very simple message at the outset of this, and Jesus summed it up later when he says that you cannot serve two masters, right? Right? You can't serve God and money. That's what Jesus said. You can't serve God and money. And I always thought it was very interesting that Jesus, when he, he could have chosen anything to say to put in opposition of serving God. He could have said, you can't serve God in sports. He could have said that. He could have said, you can't serve God in work. He could have even said, you can't serve God in family. Right? Family can become an idol. Jesus didn't say any of those things. He said, you can't serve God and money. And I think it's because of this that we often refer to this young man as the rich, young ruler. But as a ruler, he was being ruled by something else. And financial gain has that um, characteristic to be able to do something to human beings. In fact, all throughout history, when we look at the church and we look at God's people, financial success is one thing that they've always had a hard time um, dealing with, quite frankly. It seems like silver, money, success, and sex, if I can use that term, those are the three S's that have seemed to always give people trouble. These are the things that, that the Apostle Paul talked about to his, to his young uh, protégés who were coming up. And here God says, you cannot make money your master and me your master at the same time. I won't do it. So I think the first thing to understand is Jesus is not saying, 
you should not be wealthy. Jesus is saying you can't let wealth rule your life. You can't let it become first place. And, and, you know, we can apply that and look at that in a lot of different ways. You know, what do we, even as believers, what do we push aside that God is calling us to do in order to make a little more money? You know, oftentimes, guys, let me just talk to you for a little bit because we have this tendency to say things like, oh, I'm doing this for my family. No, you're not. You're doing it for your bass boat. All right? Or your upgrade or whatever it is. Just be real. You know, sometimes it's real easy for us to put on something that looks good and say, oh, we're doing this. I'm doing this for my family. You know what? If you ask your family about it, there was a man who told a story about going on vacation, and one day their, their activity that they were going to do got canceled. And he was scrambling, saying, what, what in the world are we going to do? And so he heard about this little lake that wasn't far, and he took the kids to the lake, and they fed ducks that day. After they got back from this vacation that he had spent tons of money on, he asked the kids, what was your favorite thing that we did? And they said, oh, it was feeding the ducks. He's like, come on, I spent thousands of dollars taking you to blah, 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 blah. They just liked it because it was something they did together and they, they enjoyed it. It was being together. And it's interesting that a lot of times we will even push God to the side and say, I know God's put this call in my heart. He's wanting me to do this. I, I'll, I'll do it. Once I get this next promotion, things will be, they'll be better. I'll, I'll be in a better spot. Or, or once I make this business deal happen, or maybe when we say something like, you know, I, I've, got a, I, I've got this iron, this iron, this iron in the fire, and I, I want to get my business going here so that I can do it, and then I'll do God's work. And all the time, God is saying, well, why don't you put this stuff in my hands? And let's see what happens. Why, why don't you just let me take it, and, and you obey me, and let's see where this goes. Well, God, I've got to help you. I've got to make sure I'm financially secure for it. And I'm not talking about being ignorant and, and dumb with our money, anything like that. Sometimes we put God on the back burner for our own comforts. And I think sometimes we just have to come face to face with that reality. So here's this rich man, and, and he has a fertile farm. It's producing fine crops. So he has this business. The business is doing well. It's growing. It's overflowing. He says, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. I'm going to move my money from this account to this account, bigger account, so I can earn more funds. You know, all of this stuff I'm going to create. Remember, when he's building bigger barns, what's he doing? He's creating more work, which means there's less time for other things. And then I'll have enough room for everything. So the day will come that everything will be good and everything will be right. And then I'll sit back and say to myself, you have enough stored away for many, many years. You have reached the pinnacle. Now you can take it easy. And God says you're full because now you've spent your entire life doing what you wanted to get to this point and your number's up. Now, now who all is, who's, is this going to be? Who's this going to belong to, right? And... If taxes keep going the way they are, it's going to be the government's, right? Or whatever. So busy making a living doesn't make a life. So some people have pinned this as the rich fool syndrome. Let's look at it. It's characterized by two illusions 
that are very prominent in this man's life. And it's amazing that here's a story that Jesus told 2,000 years ago, and guess what? We're still living it today. Why? Because it's human nature. Remember, Jesus came to save us from our own nature. Illusion number one, when things settle down. So when things settle down, I don't know about you. I've said this before. I have a moment of truth. How many have ever said that? When things settle down, sure. When things settle down. When does this happen? When you die. It's amazing how much you slow down when you die. But usually not until then, right? Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. Let me tell you why. How many of you love God? Good. How many of you love God with, as the scripture says, with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? Percentages went down on that question quite, quite a bit. How many of you want to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? There we go. Listen. Get this, get this. You can't love in a hurry. You might be able to get to a situation in a hurry to extend love, but you can't love in a hurry. It takes time, right? If you've been married a long time, I'm hoping you love your spouse more now than you did in the day that you were married, right? Don't be like the, like the guy, his wife said, honey, you know, it's been years and you've not told me that you love me. He said, listen, I told you when we got married and if anything changes, I'll let you know. We want to convey that. We want that love to grow. You can't love in a hurry. And Jesus calls us to love. Here's something else you can't do in a hurry. You can't grow spiritually. You just can't grow spiritually. And you might have moments in your life when you, it feels like you're, you know, you're peaking, things are really going good, and, and that's great. Hold on to those times. Hold on to those mountains. Because all of you that know this is true say, man, the valleys will come. Right? And you can't do that in a hurry. But hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life and our spiritual day. Because you just can't love and you just can't grow in a hurry. In fact, what we must do, here's the answer to this, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. There's a couple of great books if you need help with that. Um, Margin is one. Just helps get, get life in order. Let's go on to our second illusion. Here's the second. Someday... More will be enough. Someday, more will be enough. More what? More choices. More success. More stuff. The lie is that more brings contentment, right? More brings contentment, and one day more is going to be enough. Here's the truth of the matter. More will never be enough. And we'll illustrate that in a moment. More will never be enough. The Apostle Paul, in fact, has a way different perspective on having enough than what we do. Here's what he says. Look at Philippians 4.11. Bring that up on the screen. He says this, For I have learned to be content, and from the Amplified, satisfied to the point where I am not disturbed or disquieted in whatever state I am. Now you will notice on on the PowerPoint, on the slide, that there is a word that's underlined. The word is learned. I have learned to be content. I underline that because I think it's important we understand that this isn't something that just naturally comes to us. The great Apostle Paul said he had to learn this. He had to go through things. He had to go through trials. He had to go through places in his life where really he was forced. There's a a passage where Paul says he's talking about fasting. And he says, sometimes I fast because that's what God wants me to. 
to, and sometimes I fast out of necessity. That meant he had no food. So he looks in the cupboard, oh, there's no food. This is a good day to fast, right? What a great attitude. He learned in whatever state he was to be satisfied to the point where he is not disturbed or disquieted. You know, our world today is very disturbed. It's very disquieted, right? In all kinds of areas and all kinds of things. And I wonder how much of this stems back to a lack of contentment in our own hearts, that one day more will be, a lot, will be enough. I've learned the secret, he says, of being content. Contentment must be learned. There's a great theologian that gives us a perspective into that. The name is Snoopy. Perhaps you know Snoopy. Sitting on his doghouse on Thanksgiving, and here's what Snoopy says. He looks at his tray, his food, and says, how about that? Everyone else is eating turkey today, but just because I'm a dog, I get dog food. On his way back to his house, he thinks, of course, it might have been worse. I could have been born a turkey. Good perspective, right? Good perspective. How about, how about that phrase that he uses there in that third panel? It could be worse. Why don't you say that with me? It could be worse, right? So when you go home today and you're looking at all the things that need to be done around your house, you can say, it could be worse. Oh, that was hard for some of you. Yeah. Um, When your car is just not quite what it is or what you want it to be, practice saying, it could be worse, right? When you're sitting across the table from your spouse, let's not go there. (laughs) Just leave that one alone. There are so many things in our life that if we would learn to say it could be worse will help us get a perspective that God can use in our life, right? It could be worse. Listen, folks, this sermon, it could be worse, right? So anything in our life could be worse. And I think if we remember that, that God has us in a place and, and uh, enough or, or having more is not going to be the answer. It's not, things could be worse. But when is enough enough? That's the big question, isn't it? When is enough enough? In an article written by Pastor Hybels, he said, after tremendous success by the world's standards, this man absolutely uh, convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction, found it to not be true. History shows otherwise. For this man concluded his life, emaciated, colorless, sunken in chest, fingernails and grotesque, inch-long corkscrews, rotting black teeth and tumors, innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction on his body. Howard Hughes died believing in the myth of more. He was a billionaire junkie, insane by all reasonable standards. You would think a billionaire would have enough. But ask this question, if Howard Hughes had made one more million dollars, or if he had one more elected official in his hip pocket, would it have been enough? Would it have ever been enough? She was the most admired woman of her day. Men wanted to be with her, women envied her. But Marilyn Monroe died alone by her own hand. And you got to ask yourself, if she had just had one more hit movie, if she had just graced the cover of one more magazine, if she had had one more relationship with a powerful man, would it have been enough? Suppose one day I tell my wife, honey, go to the mall, purchase everything you ever wanted, 
whatever jewelry, whatever articles of clothing, every piece of furniture that you would want. Here is an unlimited credit card. Take it and have an absolute spree all day long. Would it be enough? Well, I guess we'll never know. For sure. When I was a kid, one of the things that I learned very early was a game called Checkers. Many of you might think it's a juvenile game, and it was. I, I, I enjoyed it. But I played checkers with my dad on a regular basis, and I started pretty early. My dad did not show any mercy. He didn't let me win for the sake of me feeling better about myself. He uh, told me to get better. And he had beat me, and then he'd, he'd say something like, son, one day you'll learn to play the game. And so I kept playing. I kept playing, and I kept playing. And I went to school, and when I would have time at the library and supposed to be reading, I was probably playing checkers, trying to find another friend that I could beat. Finally, I got to the place where I could beat any of my friends in school, I could play checkers. And I kept winning, and I kept winning. I'd go home, and Dad would just wipe me off the board, right? And I kept doing this, and kept doing this, and kept doing this. Then one day, we sat down, and we played checkers. As the game was unfolding, things began to look like it was going in my favor. And sure enough, it was. And the moment, oh, the glorious moment came when I jumped his last checker. And finally, in my possession, I had all. I had mine and I had his. And I just was elated. And I jumped up and let out a big, you know, and I was just, just, just a fanatic at the moment. And I ran around the house and I was telling my other brothers, I beat dad, I beat dad. Went into the, into the kitchen, mom's making dinner and, and I beat dad. And dad, you know, walks in and, and I said, I beat you, didn't I, dad? And he said, yes. And he admits failure and defeat. And what a moment for me, you know. And uh, he said, you did a good job. And mom was like, great. And then dad said something to me that stuck into my mind all my life. He said, now, Willie, go on back in there and put the game back in the box. What? No, that can't happen. That needs to sit there as a monument so that when people come over and visit us, we can tell them that I won, that I've got it all that I was successful, that I made, I got all the checkers. But here's the truth of the matter. When the game's over, it doesn't matter. It all goes back in the box. And when the game of life is over, it all goes back in the box. For everyone, the day comes. doesn't matter how old or how young you are. Sometimes as young people, they think you got, you got the whole world out in front of you, the whole life, I mean, you know, I used to be young once, a few days ago, and uh, it was great. I mean, I could do all kinds of stuff and not be sore the next day, right? I mean, I'd work out. I had muscles in my earlobes. That was something else. Here's the truth of the matter, though. We never know when our number's up. And for everyone, one day comes, the game ends, and it all goes back in the box. So here's the challenge. What is it that matters what, what matters for us? What is your life worth giving to?
right? That's the question. What is it that you're going to give your life to that's worth something? Because it all goes back in the box. In finance, we have a, a term, ROI. It's a return on investment. Maybe you're familiar with that. Um, the return on investment is everything you have will one day go back in the box. Is that really a good ROI? But giving to God into a kingdom that is eternal allows your gifts to have an everlasting return on their investment. How far do we have to walk down that road? I think Jesus asked us as a human race, how far do you walk down that road before you see where it leads that it will never, ever be enough? And so what are you giving your life to? Because the simple question is, then what? Then what? What happens after the next big deal? What happens after the next big promotion? Then what? Then you want more, right? The vast majority of Americans, anytime they get a promotion or more money, they raise their lifestyle. Very, very rarely do they ever keep it the same and bank the money. We raise our lifestyle, keep raising it. Then we got to have more because prices keep going up. We got to have more. It's never enough. And what about what God's calling you to do? What about that little achy place in your heart? That every now and then, in a silent moment with God, you feel that twinge of the Holy Spirit that says, I've been after you a long time to do this. I've been knocking on your heart a long time. And every time you tell me, I'll get to that when things settle down, God. Maybe another few months. Maybe this one more move. Maybe this, maybe, 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 maybe. And you keep shutting the door in God's face. Keep shutting the door in God's face. And I think that's where we got to look at our hearts today. What are you giving your life to? What is it that you might be saying no to God? It's not that you mean to say no to God. It's not that you're just being mean, right? But you're saying yes to so many other things that there's just nothing left for God. It's not that you're you know, a bad Christian. I'm not saying that. I'm saying so many times we say yes to good things and we miss the best things. It can happen, right? But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be required of you and then who will get all of these things that you have amassed? So when you get the ultimate in whatever you're seeking and the excitement wears off and then you say, then what? What's the next big thing? I think it comes down to this question. Are you ready for the moment when it all goes back in the box, when the game is over and it all goes in the box? Would you bow your heads? Lord, I want to thank you for this story that you gave us that we can put it in perspective in our own life. And so, Lord, as we come to this moment, I pray that you will knock on our hearts. And for some folks here today, God, maybe you've been trying to get their attention about something. Maybe it's been a short while. Maybe for some it's been a long time. And you're wanting to remind them 
that you want their obedience today. To take a good look at where they're at and say, God, I'm going to surrender to you because that's where I get the best return on a life well invested. God, touch our hearts in the next few moments. May we open ourselves to you. May we look for those windows and doors that maybe you've provided that we've closed or shut and uh, give those to you. We'll play this song, Paxton, if you wouldn't mind coming back and singing Throne Room a little bit. And uh, the altars are open. Or if you want someone else to pray with you, ask somebody. Maybe you need to spend just a few minutes with God in prayer, um, talking to Him.
thank you for this moment in time today. Thank you for your presence. Thank you uh, for your power to go into our very hearts and to challenge us. We thank you in Christ's name. Let the church say amen. Amen. Thank you, Paxton. Great job. Are there any announcements from anybody that I need that we need to make? JP, anybody? Okay. All right. Well, we have prayed. We have worshipped. We have been in the Word. I uh, hope everyone has a wonderful day today, and you're able to enjoy it. And let's have a great week. God bless you all. You're dismissed. Break. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't. I, uh, see. Yes. Sure. Why not? Why not, Gene? Why not? Why don't we do the offering? Why not? Uh, yeah. All right. So, uh, Ryan, why didn't you say anything when I asked? Just, just throwing you under the bus, brother. All right. They're gonna, they're gonna come for with an off with their uh, offering pains. If you'd like to give, haven't given already, and would like to, come on up. Let's let, let's do it. We're gonna receive today's tithe and offering. Yeah. Amen. God, we thank you that you are the God of supply, and over and over you have shown yourself and proven yourself to be great in that matter. And we thank you for the gifts that are coming in today. Lord, we know that they are given to you from hearts that love you, and we just ask that you uh, provide in great ways for your church. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You wait upon our congregation, and then we can break. All right. Then you may be dismissed. Thank you, Gene.